Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2201 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing our series of messages I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week three of a nine-week series titled, What Does God Want? This series reveals that God desires us to be part of His family as His image bearers. I pray that this will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Last week, we continued our series with an overall theme, which was to answer, what does God want? In the answer, we discovered that God wants you. He wants me. He wants every person who will ever live. In other words, God wanted a human family. God wants us to be co-workers, to take care of the creation that he created specifically for us to tend and care for. God wants you to know who you are and why your life has value to him. He loves you, and he desires that you also love him. In last week's message, we explored the three rebellions that are found in Genesis chapters 3 through 11. Now, after those rebellions, God chose to restart his human family. This is the third try. Adam and Eve, they failed. Before Noah, they failed in the great flood. And after the great flood, we saw the Tower of Babel, where he had to disperse all the nations. And he assigned them to those heavenly hosts to rule those 70 nations that were split up at Babel. And after that, he chose a single family to restart his, his human family. It resulted in the nation of Israel, God's portion, as we refer to in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 9, for the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. Now, the history of biblical Israel is a long, meandering affair. It has both triumph and tragedy in it. But God wasn't surprised by any of that. He knew exactly what to expect from his people because God had known what he was dealing with. The issue was, as they started as a nation, a fledging nation, they went to Egypt, which God permitted, but they out wore out their welcome because God let Abraham know that the future of his descendants was going to be a difficult one. And he was honest with Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 13, he said, Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. That was the bad news. But he goes on in verse 14 to provide some hope. He says, But I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, you will come away with great wealth. And sure enough, the descendants of Abraham, now led by his grandson Jacob, who was later named Israel, eventually wound up in Egypt under the thumb of Pharaoh, as we learn in Exodus chapter 1. But they had gone there with God's approval. That was during the famine, as described in Genesis 45, verses 5 through 11. But what went wrong is they did not return to the land that God had set aside and promised them. Instead, they liked the land of Goshen, the fertile crescent, which rich land where they could tend their sheep and other livestock. 
And he said, this is a pretty good gig. I think we'll just stay here. But that's not what God had intended. They stuck around Egypt way too long. And in Egypt, and while in Egypt, the Israel nation grew numerically to masses of people. So much so that the Pharaoh of that time became paranoid. And he was afraid that he was going to lose control of his country, as we're told in Exodus 1 also. And then he put them into forced labor, and he exterminated the new babies, if they were boys. But God intervened and made them to grow even stronger during that time of persecution. All told, Israel spent those four centuries in Egypt under harsh conditions, and eventually God intervened and pursued the life of a baby boy, or preserved the life of a baby boy named Moses. God engineered these circumstances so that the baby was not only preserved, but he was raised in Pharaoh's household, right under the Pharaoh's nose. And he had no clue that God was preparing this special person to lead the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 2. Now Moses did lead a privileged life, but one day he committed an, a capital offense. He murdered a man that was fighting with one of the Egyptians, an Israel, helpless Israelite. Then he fled to Egypt to escape that justice. Because even the Israelites said, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian yesterday? And he knew he had been found out. Now Moses had to find a new life in the desert of Midian. And he was there for 40 years, God preparing him as a shepherd to take care of the sheep of Israel. And toward the end of that 40 years, God met him on Mount Sinai in that burning bush. And that person that was within the verse, most Hebrew scholars believe is that pre-incarnate Christ that says, you're standing on holy ground, take your shoes off. Because Moses was frightened in that case. He had an encounter that would change not only the nation of Israel, but the entire world in Exodus chapter 3. And God sent Moses back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. He was to demand the release of God's people. And God promised to protect Moses and empower him. And the rest of the story is one of the most famous stories in the Bible, even if you've never read the Bible, but you've heard about it or have seen it in movies about the ten plagues that God sent against Egypt and its gods. When Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go, God used Moses as a force to release the multitudes of Israelites from the Egyptian bondage. He parted the Red Sea, what probably the most, or one of the most miraculous events in all of scripture. And he did that after the Egyptians said, oh, we let our slaves go. What will we do? So they sent after him to slaughter them in the wilderness, but God parted the Red Sea. But it wasn't for showmanship. It was about preserving his people, his family, because God still wanted a family. Regardless of the three rebellions we looked at last week, God still wanted a family. So now they were in the wilderness wandering, and it comes over to law and loyalty. Eventually, God brought his people back where he initially spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. And there he gave the Israelites those Ten Commandments that Sue read for us today. He made a covenant promise with them. 
It's like a legal contract. He says, this is my contract with you. And some of those were unconditional. Some were conditional based on their reaction to, to God. And it's important to realize, though, that Israel was God's family before the Ten Commandments. Just like Abraham was God's before his circumcision. It wasn't based on their obedience to him that he accepted them into his family, but he loved them, and they were his family before the Ten Commandments. God referred to his people as his family when Moses confronted Israel, uh, Pharaoh in Exodus chapters 3 through 7. The laws weren't about earning a place in God's family because the Israelites were already part of God's family. But we need to un unpack that distinction here. It's pretty essential. Rather than earning a place in God's family, God gave his people laws that would show them why, if they followed the laws, that they would desire to be in his family. God's laws weren't about showing, weren't about showing God that they were going, because they were disloyal to many of those laws, and they aligned themselves with other gods. But being loyal believers would allow God to use the Israelites to minister to the other nations as the kingdom of priests. If you'll look at your bulletin insert on the side, it says, what does God want? We saw that God wants a family. But we also got to see that God was betrayed by his family. But in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, says, Now if you obey and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among the people on all the earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This will be the message you must give to the people of God. Now, while God accepted the Israelites into his family before the law was given, they were expected to follow him and forsake all other gods. God wanted a human family. He wanted to restart with this one group called Israel. Now, if they were loyal believers, they would be a blessing to all other nations. As we're told in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, when God originally called Abraham, or at that point, Abram, he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on the earth will be blessed through you. And when it talks about the kingdom of priests, a holy nation, that wasn't the only time that was used in the scripture. Because in Revelation chapter 1, verse 6, at the bottom of your bulletin insert says, I have made you a kingdom of priests, the same terms here. For God is his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. So that applies to us as being kingdom of priests, a holy nation, if we choose to accept God as the one true God. Now there's more to this angle, to understanding of what God's covenant was. God's laws weren't there about being good enough to make God love them. God's love does not depend on our goodness. God had already loved Israel prior to that. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8 says, The Lord did not set his heart on you to choose you because you were more numerous than the other nations, but you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that God loves you, and he was keeping his oath he had sworn to his ancestors, your ancestors. And that is why the Lord rescued you with such a strong hand from the slavery and from the oppressive hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
that God's acceptance of us isn't based on us keeping his laws, but being loyal to him. And it's still true today. He had supernaturally enabled the elderly Abraham and Sarah to have a child, within time became the nation of Israel. Having a family was his whole point. He created the earth and everything in it so that his human family could reign and rule and take care of that creation. God's laws were designed to help his children avoid other gods, to live happy, peaceful lives with one another. It was not to improve God's disposition to him. God loved us while we were still sinners. True to form, God would not dismiss his free will, which we talked about last week. He just asked that they would believe in him and that who he was and that he created them out of love and to forsake all other gods. And that's the key that we need to take from this is to forsake all other gods. Any member of Israel could reject gods in his love for them if they wanted to. They could choose not to believe in God. They could choose to worship other gods. And we'll see within the nation of Israel in the summary of the Old Testament from Israel on, many of them did just that. Once the Israelites left Mount Sinai, where God had given them the law, God led them in the form of a man. Many of the Hebrew scholars think this angel that led them was actually the pre-incarnate Christ. And most of us don't understand or realize, because it never really dawned on me, this angel led them through the wilderness for those 40 years that they wandered. Look on your other side of your bulletin insert today. God continues to lead us today. God's a promise of the Lord's presence. In Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 through 23, see, I am sending an angel before you to protect you on your journey and to lead you safely to the place that I have prepared for you. Pay close attention to him and obey his instructions. Do not rebel against him, for he is my representative or my imager, and he will not forgive your rebellion. But if you obey, are careful to obey him following all my instructions, then I will be an enemy to your enemies. I will oppose those who oppose you. For the angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, so that you may live there and I will destroy them completely. So along the way, you would think, after going through the Red Sea, after being freed from Egypt, that they would realize how magnificent God was. And yet that's not the case. They complained about not having enough food or water, but God always provided for them. Exodus 15 and 16. They had no, they had to fight for their lives among enemies that would try to snuff them out. But God saved them from destruction, as we're told in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, Joshua 11 and 12, Psalm 136, and Acts chapter 13. But they finally arrived into the land after wandering through the desert for 40 years because of their lack of faith. But the angel of God wandered with them throughout that entire time. Now, you'd think after God brought them in Israel into the land, the promised land they finally were able to, to go into, the Israelites would then feel an overwhelming love for God, that their believing loyalty would be at an all-time high, but not so much. We see once they enter the land, the promised land that God had given to them, 
it became a downward spiral. Instead, they desired to coexist with evil, and they thought that it would somehow work for them. They refused to drive out the idolaters, the people who worshipped other gods and other idols. They refused to drive them completely out of the land. It's like the Israelites knew nothing of the past, and yet they had God's word, whether in audible form or written form. The Israelites knew nothing about that. The rebellions and how disastrous those rebellions were. Their disloyalty and lack of love for God was a demoralizing scene. After they move into the promised land, Judges tells us what had happened. In Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the same angel that led them through the wilderness appears once again. There's possibly the pre-incarnate Christ. It says, the angel of the land, or angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said to the Israelites, I have brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give to your ancestors, and I said I would never break my covenant with you. For, my, for your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in the land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. But you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out these people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. God had given them his promises, his covenants, and yet they refused to follow him. Now God had to judge his people once again. It's an endless cycle. But just think of our own lives. Isn't it an endless cycle, a struggle to live as God wants us to. So we're no different than the Israelites. He basically said to them, if you choose other gods other than the one true God, then I'm not going to assist you in your plight. If you don't want me, how are you going to get along without my help? And we've seen this before. And as we've seen before, God's people did very poorly on their own without God being present with them. And since we're rehashing the history of the nation of Israel, God's response also looks familiar. He kept coming back to Israel to lift them out of their troubles. We all know that people like this, maybe you're a person that always going to that person you love to try to help them out of their troubles. And after a while, it almost seems irrational. You go over and over to help these people out of their trouble, and yet they continue to return to their old ways. And if you think about it, that's what God was doing. And in logical sense, in our minds, that doesn't make sense. Why help someone who doesn't change and acknowledge the help that you've given them? But God so loved us that he still wanted this human family, that he wanted to love them as he always will, but he also wanted them to love him back and to do away with any other gods. His love defies all logic. The whole biblical book of the Judges, which I read that first couple of verses in, in Judges, is about a seemingly never-ending cycle of spiritual rebellion, the suffering that it brings, crying out to God for help, and then God lifting them out of their trouble once again. That was the whole book of Judges, that same cycle over and over again. 
This cycle persisted for a few centuries, in fact. Then finally, it reached a climax when the people of the nation of Israel demanded that Samuel, the final judge, who was also a priest and a prophet, they said, give us a king like all the other nations have. That wasn't a sin to have a king by its, in itself because Deuteronomy talks about when you have a king over your land, this is how the king is supposed to, to work. But they said, no, we want somebody to lead us into battle. Well, that's what God was doing for them already. And they rejected that. Not surprisingly, the people's choice of a king, King Saul, was an unmitigated disaster. You know things aren't going very well, or at least you ought to know, when your choice for the king has to be pulled out of hiding just to take his job, as we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 22. Now, eventually, God chose to replace Saul with David. But David was a moral mess. But he was certainly much better than Saul. And the reason he was much better, yes, he had some moral issues. But every time he repented, turned back to God, and he was never disloyal to God. He never worshipped any other gods other than the one true God. And because of that, God says, David is a man after my own heart. He was willing to repent and turn back to God. For that reason, God made a covenant promise with David that said only your sons could be legitimate rulers in Israel. And that covenant was about creating a whole dynasty for David. God would only consider heirs or descendants of David to be a legitimate king in Israel. But sadly, the rest of Israel's history includes many men that became kings, and yet they refuse to follow the Lord, the Lord God. They had the correct lineage, but they were otherwise unfit to be a king over God's holy people. God had to remove David's descendants because they were disloyal to him. Not because they sinned necessarily, as David's life showed that he did, but because they followed other gods. And this is the basis for inclusion or exclusion in God's family. You follow the one true God. That's when he says, come unto me. But if you choose to follow other gods, then we're not being faithful and loyal to, to God. The descendants of David inheriting the throne was supposed to love God and to be part of the proper family history. And that is why every king was supposed to keep the copy of God's laws with them as they ruled, and they were supposed to know that, as we're told in Deuteronomy 17 and 2 Kings chapter 11. The king was supposed to be a, a more excellent example of an imager or a loyal believer in God, and yet so many of the kings failed. David's son Solomon was the greatest king who ever lived in all of Israel's history. But that's only true if land holdings and wealth were the litmus test. Sadly, his believing loyalty in the one true God wavered throughout his life. He sacrificed to other gods and has a series of political marriages that brought the worship of other gods into the very heart of Israel. And the results were disastrous, as we're told in 1 Kings chapter 11. In other words, Solomon began a cycle of spiritual compromise and rebellion that led to a national ruin. And because of this, we see a final betrayal of Israel to the one true God. 
after Solomon's death, 10 of the 12 tribes didn't like Solomon's replacement for him. They chose to break off and become their own nation. The kingdom of Israel was divided into two parts by tribes and geography. God's family was now a broken home, so to speak. And sadly, many kings during this ensuing period had never even seen a copy of God's laws. And one of the basic premises was, you are to have a copy of my laws with you at all time as a king. The northern part of the divided nations, the ten tribes that rebelled politically, they immediately plunged into spiritual rebellion, as we're told in 1 Kings chapter 12. And instead of showing believing loyalty in God, which is all God asked, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. That's what he was asking of them. Not that they were to be perfect. This one true God gave them the land as their inheritance, and he supernaturally brought them into existence. But most of Israel betrayed God. This is why the prophets roamed about the countryside, preaching during this time, and compared their spiritual rebellion to the plane of a whore or spiritual adultery. Vivid details or analogies. But the southern part of the country, those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they did a little bit better. But they rebelled, went into spiritual rebellion just a little bit slower. But gradual sin is still sin. Now, abandoning God never goes well. We all have that tendency. We all think that we can rule better than God can rule. But the Bible says in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, but if you fail to keep my word, your word, then you will have sinned against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out. As he had done in other times, God let the people exercise the freedom. He gave us free will. That's how we can be like God as God's imager made in the image of God is because we do have a choice. We do have free will. But that exercise of free will did not end well for Israel. In 722, the northern tribes eventually were overrun by a people. And I like to call these people the Klingons of the Old Testament, the Assyrians. That's a Star Trek reference. If you're not familiar with Star Trek, maybe the Lord of the Rings is more familiar. Think of the Assyrians as the hordes of Mordor. I like these analogies because the Assyrians were especially noted for their cruelty for those nations that they overtook and conquered. It reminds me of another Star Trek analogy, that of the Borg. And the Borg was of one mind. And they say the, the statement is, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. And that's how the Assyrians looked at it. They wanted to completely assimilate those people. The two remaining tribes, Judah and Benjamin, were conquered by the Babylonians and taken into exile about a, hundred, a little over 100 years later in 586 BC. And as a result of thousands of Israelites were forced into exile. But the difference between the Syrians where they completely split up families, did away with all their customs and cultures and intermixed them within the entire Assyrian nation, Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated into the Assyrians. Babylon, at least, 
allow them to keep some of their heritage in Jewish tradition and culture. And from that group, a remnant returned to Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the walls and eventually the temple. The remaining 10 northern tribes were never brought back to Israel. You say, well, what happened to them? They were not brought back until Pentecost, when every nation was brought back. They were split up at the Babel of, Tower of Babel, but the 10 northern tribes and all nations were brought back together as one at Pentecost under the reigning of Christ. Let's be honest. We'd understand if God wanted to forget us about his people at this point. They had rebelled time and time again, well over a thousand years since Abraham. So it's hard to avoid the conclusion that the Israelites got what they deserved. What if that was true of us? If we got what we deserved? But that's not how God works. God, rather than calling it quits and saying, I'm done with this humanity, that was a bad idea because God still wanted a human family. But getting his people and the rest of humanity back into the family required that he change tactics. God had made a series of covenants with his people, but people are obviously mere humans that fail, and we fail a lot with particular regularity. The rest of humanity, which had been assigned to those supernatural beings, the sons of God, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 8, it says, when the Most High assigned the lands of the nation, when he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the people according to the numbers in his heavenly court. When he split the people up, it's so he could focus on one nation, his chosen people. But at Pentecost, he brings all of us back together. The supernatural rulers that took over the remaining nations of the world at Babel became enemies of the Creator, and things got complicated. But God has a two-part solution for all of this. When the last children in God's family were on the verge of exile going into Babylon, God prompted two prophets, probably the most too familiar, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He was to tell the people that they were not wholly forgotten. I'm not going to completely banish you. God would make a new covenant with his children, one marked with the coming of the Spirit, as Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel chapter 36 tells us. It was a new day that was coming. But a new day coming didn't address the question about how God could honor his older covenants that he already made with his people without scrapping or changing them. A lot of Israelites rejected God. There was always a remnant that followed him, regardless of how the nation turned out. A lot of Israelites rejected him. They showed their contempt for him by breaking his laws. This grieved God, and he wanted to honor his promises that he had made with his people because his promises were all made out of love. But so many of his children were seduced into worshiping other gods of other nations. This was the path to death. Remember, because of what happened in Eden, every human being was destined to die and not have eternal life. That is, until they turned to the one true God and believed in his love and promises. But for far too many of the Israelites, they forgot all that. But they just can't pick their gods as if it was 
some sort of spiritual buffet or smorgasbord. They had to choose the one true God and follow him. The situation was especially problematic when it came to the Israel's kings. God had promised David and his heirs would inherit the throne, but many of them turned away from him. God couldn't ignore the lack of believing loyalty. He also couldn't just scrap his promises. That would be like admitting this whole humanity was a bad idea. But the God of all creation, the God of gods, the one true God who knows everything cannot have a bad idea. So how could God honor and keep his promises to a people who rejected him and were estranged from him? The answer is that they needed new hearts. They needed his presence to guide them daily, every single day. What was needed as a descendant of Abraham and David, who could be the ultimate king and the perfect imager of God, representing God in every aspect of his life. That descendant also needed to overturn the curse of death that was on the human race. But how can a mere human conquer death? That's not logical. The only way that could be ever possible is if that human was also God. But how was that supposed to work? It's not logical in our minds. How can God become a man? But it was no problem for God. If you remember, God had planned redemption before he created the world and anything in it. He knew what would happen. Nothing surprised him. He worked with people drawing to him. But he knew eventually that he would have to become human in order to redeem them. And I realize this is just a brief summary. Today was an overview of Israel's history. It's a needed part. These past three messages are a needed part to prove that God wanted a family, regardless of how they would respond to him in return. But then God would have to become one of us to have a human family that he truly loved and desired. And that's precisely what happened. The overall theme of this series is what does God want? We know he wants you. He wants me. He wants all of humanity. But he has to have had a plan that could accept all of humanity into his presence as holy and blameless. And that could be only happen if God became one of us to be the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And that's what we'll look at next week. God joined his human family. So I'd encourage you to read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, and John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for this overview of Israel's history, the tragedy, and yet the triumphs that we saw today. The tragedy that because so many of the Israelites turned away from the one true God and chose to worship the gods of the other nations. But a triumph, because even before you created the earth or anything in it, you had a plan of redemption in place. May we take advantage of that redemption, Father, by believing in your Son, Jesus Christ, who came to the world 
to become sin for us, that we may be made righteous in your sight. Let us learn the lessons from the Israelites that we do not have to repeat it, Father. Let us always repent from our sin and never let, never forget to worship you as the one true God, Father, in believing loyalty. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.